Well, folks, hi, a very warm welcome to today's uh, Generation Podcast. Welcome to Series 2, I think this is the third episode of like a box set. You'll be buying a copy for your friends for Christmas. But um, Generation Podcast is when we look at mission through Scottish eyes and with a bit of a Scottish accent. And uh, it's my pleasure to have a fellow Scot today, Liam Gerard uh, Fraser. Uh, good morning, Liam. Welcome. Thank you, David. Nice to see you. Great. Our, the reason for our chat today is that Liam has just written uh, what I think is, is a phenomenal book. And this is it, uh, Mission in Contemporary Scotland. It was published about uh, a month ago, re- released about a month to six weeks ago, so it's still pretty fresh. Anybody involved in thinking about church and mission in Scotland from whatever tribe uh, really must read this. So, so Liam, great to have you with us. Can you tell us a little bit about the motivation for writing the book? Yeah, no, thanks, Dave, for having me on. I mean, this basically came out of my own sense of frustration at this the simple lack of resources out there um, for engaging with mission. Um, I mean, I was I was ordained as the first pioneer minister in the Church of Scotland. Um, I was placed, kind of dropped in the middle of the University of Edinburgh. Um, by myself, like uh, sent to the wolves, and um, really was looking around for guidance as to what on earth I should do. And uh, I didn't find a huge amount. You can probably, as I say in the introduction to the book, you could probably count the number of books on uh, mission in a, a Scottish contemporary context, really on just one or two hands. And there's very, very little out there. Um, and really, it was an attempt to try and address my own questions about why we are in the situation we are in, why is it that so few people want to engage with churches? Um, what is it about Scottish contemporary society that seems to be so um, toxic, essentially, to, to, to Christian faith? Um, so that was the second thing. And really as well looking a lot more kind of forensically at the, what the churches are actually doing. Because, you know, I see a wide range, as you do, of all sorts of different kinds of church, all sorts of different kinds of theology and missional theology. And many of the things which people are doing are based on theological assumptions, which are not actually articulated and defended. And so there's another thing as well about the book I want to do, is to try and look at what people are doing to try and tease out some of the theologies that are underpinning those and just interrogate them a bit. Um, because um, what I see in, in some denominations, for example, is the belief that you know God works through the state or civil society as much as or more than the church. And if that's actually what you believe, and I think a lot of people actually do believe that um, because they sometimes write about it and then you find out, um, that has massive effects about what you think the church is for, what you should be doing as a minister or a church leader, member, etc. Um, and really will determine what kind of mission you do. And to my, to my not thinking as well, will, will largely determine the future of the church. Because if you don't believe that God is working through the church and that the church is important to God's um, you know, plans for the world, um, yeah. for his kingdom, then that that is really going to affect the the uh, effectiveness, the efficacy of what you're doing. And it will also misdirect your resources and your planning and strategizing in the wrong direction. So, yeah, it, was, it came out of my own sense of frustration, the lack of stuff that was there. I need to really probe what we're doing, understand the theological basis for it. Yeah, and it's certainly wide. I mean, you mentioned there about the church franchising, uh, mission to the state. You've got a great quote in there from Yungle, I think, and uh, which is very perceptive. So, I mean, you're quoting everybody from Yungle to 
Keller to, I think he even saw John Piper quote in there. So, you know, all the tribes are mentioned. Let's talk about the books divided into three. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about the first section, Just which I thought was, again, I'm going to be giving the game away here, peaking too soon, but one of the best broad historical surveys of the Scottish scene. Uh, and I, again, I think anybody reading that will get a great bird's eye view of, of the scene. So describe the first section to, to us. Yeah, the first section of the book is really about the background to mission in contemporary Scotland. Um, so it's looking at the theology of mission. Um, it's looking at the way in which the Scottish church understood its calling historically and the way that was structured through what was called the parish state. And we'll talk about that in a minute. And then the third part, which to me is the kind of bit where it kind of hits the road, um, is really looking at the secularisation of Scotland, looking at how um, the way in which the church understood its calling and its mission in the parish state um, was confronted with economic and political forces and economic forces, which basically destabilised and broke that parish state apart. And the, the disintegration of the parish state um, is really the reason why we have different denominations today in Scotland, so many of them and particularly why we then have this situation where um, the majority of the population are indifferent um, to the Christian faith, not even hostile to, just completely and utterly indifferent. So the first chapter looks at missional theology. It looks, it grums uh, the mission of the church and, of course, the Trinity, and, of course, in God's, God's mission to the world. Um, it goes to different contexts and horizons that the Christian mission um, has to take into account in order to properly orientate itself both towards God and to the world that we live in. First of all, it's the nature of God. And I, I make it really, really clear at the beginning that, you know, the, the ultimate motivation for any ministry, any mission at all, is simply our apprehension of the glory of God. Um, God is beautiful, so beautiful and so wonderful. And unless you actually understand how wonderful God is um, and, and the amazing things he's done, then that's not going to give you the motivation for mission. It's not going to direct you in the right direction. You're going to go awry. So it begins with this, this vision of God and of his goodness. Um, and then we look at creation. We look at culture. And we look at the way in which the early church tried to orientate itself towards the Roman world. Noting some of the things that were similar in the early church's experience. Yeah. Also the dissimilarities. And I, I, like, I, mean, I want to stress the dissimilarities. We often get talking kind of flippantly that, um, oh, in our context, is just like the Roman world or something like that. Like, yeah. It is really different from the Roman world. I would, if the church was in the Roman world, we'd be all be doing a lot better right now, you know? Yeah. Scottish, yeah. <laughs> they, they actually had it. They had, well, they faced persecution. As we know, historically, persecution often aids the church. Um, indifference is, is a much more um, difficult enemy to face. So that's the first bit, missional theology. Second bit looks at the parish state, um, which looks really at the way in which the church's ministry and mission was structured through the parish system. Um, that... Uh, the way in which the reformers understood ministry um, essentially um, shaped and demarcated the range of different types of mission that were possible. Um, so, of course, Calvin had a very interesting passage in the Institutes where he talks about the ordinary and extraordinary ministries. And he basically says that, um, well, it's possible for God to raise up other forms of ministry, you know, and, and evangelists, prophets, etc. But really, he just does it through these kind of pastors the pastor teacher, and essentially that they, they kind of all collapse into pastor. Um, 
so looking at that and the way in which that was actually worked out, and then looking at the secularization of Scotland. And that's and this is this is where I think the really kind of key thing is. And there's two main factors I want to kind of get across to people on that. The one of them, which you might come to in a minute, is church disunity. Um, and yeah, this is where I feel a bit of an ouch. Come on, say it, say it, say <laughs> well, it, go for it. <laughs> well, as I, as I said earlier, the, the key thing about this book is that everyone gets a slap in the face for the book, yeah, right? You, you can use the D. You can use the D word. You know, eighteen forty-three. Yeah, I mean, I mean, basically, in terms of direct church um, influence upon secularisation in Scotland, the number one church thing was the disruption of the Church of Scotland. And it's very, very simple why that was. Um, and this is not some sort of denominational slight or anything. Um, basically, the Church of Scotland ran pretty much everything in the country. Um, the church-state relationship essentially meant that uh, local government was the church. You know, the church did yeah. a huge number of things that local government now does, that the central government does, um, in terms of health care, social care, you know, even road maintenance. I mean, strange things you wouldn't even think they were doing, they were doing, you know. It was all run around the parish, the parish crook session, you know. Um, and basically, when uh, you know such a large proportion of ministers and members and elders left, there was not enough money and people to run all of the things that the Church of Scotland ran. Um, and because of that lack of people and money, and because the state couldn't be seen to be giving preferential treatment to either the Free Church or the Church of Scotland, because they were split too often, they were split. Yeah. Simplest solution. We'll take it over. We'll take over the schools. We'll take over the hospitals. And, you know, there was some pushback against that in both denominations. You know, there was. But actually, because they didn't have a lot of money, you know, they were building churches everywhere and competing with each other. Um, and because actually, at that point, you know, non-denominational schooling was secured, then, you know, the, the Protestants all thought they were getting a good deal out of this because the state's going to basically run schools, pay for them, and still get us to teach Christianity to them, you know. Um, but unfortunately, over time, as Scotland secularised, that meant there were no safeguards in place to stop the, um, the complete secularisation of Scottish public institutions. You know, there, was, there was far few. In England, a very different story. They thankfully had their schism way back in the 17th century, you know, when the, the, great, the great ejection. This, because it happened so soon, um, not that long ago in Scotland, it meant that, yeah, there was a real um, uh, opportunity for the state to take over. And of course, that's reflecting the theologies too. Yeah, because in addition to you know, while this was happening, church leaders were trying to justify what was happening, and they justified by saying, "Oh well, you know, um, you know, God works through the state as much as through the church, and the state has its own relationship to God independent of the church." I mean, what does that even mean? I don't know what that means. That's what they were saying, yeah. um, and that has big that that then trickled down over the centuries, and had massive effects on what churches are currently thinking and doing now. Yeah, so that's part one. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I mean, just piece out a, a little bit. That's what we call the establishment principle, which is really pretty utterly theoretical, isn't it? You know, that the, the state has a duty to support the church, but not interfere. And the church has a duty to support the state and not to get involved in their own spheres, but to support one another. It's a pipe dream, isn't it? It's, it's a difficult thing, this, David. I mean, like, in principle, I support the establishment principle. Yeah. Um, because actually, I think it is the role of the state to support the church. <laughs> and I yeah. do think that the, the, the church isn't meant to do everything. So yeah. in, in principle, I think I'm, a, I'm, I'm an establishment man in that, in that respect. The problem, however, is that we're in a situation, not 
this is not dissimilar from the way in which you know radical covenanters felt after the restoration. You know, we actually had an uncovenanted king in government, and he didn't yeah. like that. And we're in a situation now. Analogies are quite different, but um, you know, we have a government which does not recognise its responsibility to care for the church. Um, we might think that, but they, they don't. Um, and therefore, you know, I don't think you need to necessarily or logically abandon that as an ideal. Yeah. But I think that given the way the situation is, we need to adopt other practical um, ways yeah. of relating to the state that are probably different from that because we don't have much alternative. I, I, I'm sure our, our listeners are really enthralled by the establishment principle and, and <laughs> the, the four people out there who are actually semi-interested in it. I hope that was interesting. So you talk about the schism disruption. Again, I think a lot of academics would, would go along with that. It's, you know, it did lead to secularization. You've got a really interesting analysis on idolatry and materialism. Tell us a little bit about that. You know, thank you for reminding me. That was the other thing I was meant to say about, about part one. And going to part I've read the book. You see. I know, but actually, but thankfully, someone read the book. And I wrote the book, but didn't actually read it. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I've forgotten half of it already. No, um, yeah, but basically, while all that church schism stuff, you know, had an effect, and it did um, very directly, and you had institutional secularization. In terms of changing hearts and minds, because institutions are populated by people, and it's the people who ultimately secularize, not the institutions. It's people I might mean, do it in different ways at different times, depending on where they are in society. But you know. But the big thing that happened was that basically Scotland underwent this colossal, colossal economic development um, from the sort of early 20th century, particularly the kind of middle years of the 20th century onward. And there's some sort of bonkers statistic, which I think is cited in the book, may not be, where something like you know 40 or 50% of the Scottish population moved between 1910 and 1950 or something like that. So in the space of a few decades, there was a complete mixing up of everyone because of the demolition of some tenements. Slums, new houses, new towns. All that. Now, that means, let's just unpack that. That means that people were completely unrooted, not rooted from traditional contexts where they'd be associated with a particular church and particular traditions of church going. They were completely unrooted at that point. Yeah. And that rooting was happening just at the same time as the welfare state came in and affluence came in. So the welfare state meant that people for the first time in history were existentially secure, if you can put it like that, right? They did not feel that their very beings were threatened with annihilation when they became unemployed, when they got sick, you know, when something bad happened in life. Um, so, so to some extent, their need, their, their sense of anxiety was much reduced. Their sense of a need for a saviour was reduced. Yeah. But that's one thing. But the other key thing was about the economic thing and the materialism thing. Um, you know, real wages just shot up, you know, by many, many hundreds of percent, thousands of percent in the course of the 20th century. So the everyday working people had, you know, really great luxury for the first time. And with luxury and affluence comes the ability to have economic independence. And when you've got economic independence from elites, from the church, from the community, your family, friends, etc., that gives you the space and the resources to create your own um, identity, your own yeah. worldview, your own spirituality, because no one can stop you. No one's going to step in and say, no, you can't do that. I'm going to shame you. I'm going to ostracize you. No one's got the power to do anything over you because you're economically independent. Um, this is why, just to shock some of your listeners for a minute, I like shocking people a wee bit. You know, Karl Marx was right about some things, not about the whole 
you know, yeah. within a society, proletariat, dictatorship, etc. But he was correct that economic development um, and technological development change morality. And, and I think I think that's quite well, you know, proven. And happened in Scotland where, you know, people just simply didn't need to rely upon what is called subsistence values. So the idea, the fact that, you know, you need a really harsh disciplinarian kind of society to keep people in check when there's no food and no money. You can't allow people to do their own thing. But when you've got abundance, society allows people to do whatever they want. And that means that their morality and their spirituality will change. Yeah. And that's where we get into idolatry. So people are spiritual. I mean, I don't, I don't dispute that. I mean, I think a lot of people are. Unfortunately, the, 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 there's a number, the number of spiritualities is as many as there are people, you know. Um, there's all sorts of different kinds of spirituality. And sadly for us, they don't all feed into institutional Christianity of whatever stripe you're in. Um, you know, they go off in a million and one different directions. So, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm kind of ambivalent about spirituality and about, you know, opportunities here. I mean, I think that there is, you know, an opportunity to take seriously people's spiritual experiences. I think that God does work through spiritual experiences. I think the Spirit's active in people's lives. But I think we need to be very realistic that actually that's unlikely a lot of the time to feed into church as we know it. Which yeah. is one argument in favour of fresh expressions and so forth. Which might yeah, we'll, we'll come to fresh expressions later and uh, messy church and stuff like that. Let's talk a little bit about an area that fascinates me and, and I think you. Um, I, I remember as a young person reading is it John Hyatt's book and he talks, he did a pretty early analysis of, of, the, of the figures. So mid-1950s, yeah, you've got the peak, you know, you've got Billy Graham, Kelvin Hall, you know, really a lot of action. You've got, you know, new church plans and schemes. Um, there's got a great expression, you've, you've quoted it, every new steeple means more Christian people. Uh, you know, I was brought up in a scheme in Paisley, in Foxbar, and there was St. Columbus Foxbar, it's a new church, and tons of them in, in the 50s. Okay, I think you... Your numbers are great. You can see that there was a lot of nominalism there. I mean, there was almost um, hosepipe baptisms. So, so what happened, Liam, from from that peak in the mid fifties to? I mean, I was at a symposium that you chaired a few weeks ago. It said in the Church of Scotland, they lost the congregation every week for fifteen years. The stats are saying seven percent attending church. I think that's really ambitious, even at 7%, <laughs> so, um, to, to be honest. So what's the story? What happened from the mid-1950s onwards, and why did it happen? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, on, if you were in the 1950s, I, you know, I'm no ministers from that period who talk about their ministries in the 1950s, you know, and it was a great team of optimism, of activism, of enthusiasm about the church and the state and the community working together to make Scotland better. And, you know, there's a lot of good in all that, a lot of good, a lot of aspiration. Unfortunately, yeah, when we actually drilled down into what was actually going on, you know, in that period, and there's a wonderful book with the, the least sexiest title imaginable. Um, it's, uh, let me think again, a sociological analysis of the significance of church membership in the borough of Falkirk. I mean, you couldn't really get a worse title. <laughs> that, that, that'll fly off the shelves, <laughs> that one. That's my top tip, everyone. You dig out a copy of that, right? But basically, this guy was commissioned by the Church of Scotland to drill down deep into this kind of post-war, you know, church world. 
And it's really quite shocking what he found. And I quote quite a lot of it in the books. So I find it so astonishing. And Falkirk's just up the road from where I am in Linlithgow, um, in middle Scotland, bit of industrial, bit of farming, bit of this, bit of that. It's quite, quite you know, common. And um, basically he found that the Church of Scotland was the kind of real, in many ways the church was different from other churches because actually he found similarities between the Episcopalians, the Roman Catholics, Baptists, Independents, etc. You know, there was all, they taught, they were tended to use more Christian language, tended to take their church more seriously, tended to tend more, give more proportion, all that stuff, right? The church has gone with the kind of unusual people insofar as like, basically from the majority of people really didn't attend church for worship. (laughs) 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 They went for social reasons because their family went, their friends went, because their bosses went, you know, all sorts of random reasons, you know, which you read about in this sexy, sexy title. Um, You know, so I mean, although they were getting people in, it's very, very clear even in the 60s that the, the overwhelming majority were not Christians. Um, they, they were just people along for the right for different reasons. Um, and why the churches didn't take this kind of thing more seriously, I, I don't really know. I think it's because they didn't want to believe it. They, a lot of hubris, a lot of pride. They thought, oh, well, I'll be like that for a while. And then as it's always done, it'll swing back. But then, And it didn't because of welfare security. So people felt existentially secure. They didn't need to turn to a saviour to save them from anything because actually they're quite comfortable. Like, you know, nothing's going to happen to me or my family. And then the thing about affluence too. Actually, they were able to define their own identities and their own spiritualities increasingly. And I think in terms of the big debate in sociology and secularization studies, but when did Britain secularize, right? And to me, it's quite clear that, well, this, and I've talked about the book about necessary and sufficient conditions, I think, that, you know, actually, although this was really the kind of like the main tipping point in the 50s, because you had welfare security and affluence for the main reasons, right? That's why it went down. But actually, the huge amount of nominalism in the church suggests that actually secularization began much earlier. And I think it began, you know, at least in the mid-19th century. I mean, that would be my kind of take on it. Partly because of the institutional stuff we were talking about. That's when you see the state taking stuff over. But B, because of all sorts of theological currents, philosophical currents entering into the church at that point. I just think that ministers probably stopped believing quite as much as they did before that period. And after that period, they believed a bit less and taught a bit less in a way which would be recognised by earlier generations. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, you've got really, I mean, there's lots of interesting side things. Like you talk about a liberal theology and you basically make an interesting point. That you've got to be quite smart to be a liberal because, uh, you know, it takes a degree of, of understanding of the background to it's, you know, to deconstruct the text, you've got to know the text. You've got to know the the material, but that's that's just a lot of interesting side side thing. Um, let's talk about a little bit about church planting. I was really interested what you said about that. Uh, but, you know, church planting is a bit of a thing just now. You are not so much. It would be fair to say that you are a little bit sceptical about it, but you're you're an observer. You've looked at the material, and you've said that well, okay, that you know the claim is that more new Christians come from more new churches. You're saying it's not quite as simple as that. So unpack that. Yeah, I mean this is a very very tricky area. This because actually, and to be quite frank, we do not have enough statistics about Scotland. Yeah. Scotland. To, to, to be really definitive about any of this, right? So almost all the data is coming from England, right? Um, and you can read about this online. I, I quote in the I mean, the Day of Small Things would be one example um, by the Church Army Research Unit. 
yeah. looking at all sorts of different kinds of new churches in England over a certain period and you know, comparing their success, quote-unquote, in terms of reaching new people, bringing new people to faith. And um, it's also partly based, too, upon my observations of being a pioneer and actually trying to start up a new community from scratch in Scotland. And, and I think that certainly talk about the evidence to begin with. In England, it seems to be the case that church plants, you know, do work insofar as they do attract some new Christians. So it's not like they don't work at all. But the problem is that, you know, church plants tend to be costly. Um, they involve quite a lot of people. If you're, doing, you're bringing 20, 30, 40, 50 people for a church plant, whatever it is, a lot of people involved in it. And if you look proportionally about the number, the kind of payoff, if you like, the kind of investment return, if you like, for that, the number of new Christians come to faith is actually not that high. Right? You've got a few, but not many. It seems to be the case in England that, um, you know, far more kind of generic and sort of, you know, everyday forms of um, new Christian community might be more successful in reaching new people. The thing which comes out from a lot of different kinds of research, not just the Church Army stuff, but other books as well and other bits pieces, is actually things like messy church actually might be the best thing. Um, the very simple reason that I think young parents really are trying to find supportive, loving, kind communities to be part of, and they want the children to have good morals. They want them to be raised well. Yeah, And I think that they are looking for something like a Christian community often. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of data to back up the fact that you do... But if I could move in there, because that's quite interesting, not that in news is not interesting, but one of my problems with messy church is it isn't church. It doesn't lead to, you know, the classic marks of the church, the preaching of the word, sacraments, discipline rightly administered, and let's even sacraments. It's not church. It's just a bunch of folk having a good time. Push well, back on that. No, well, no, I mean, I, I actually agree with you. And I, I think that, like, I mean, people will be, I think people will find it quite hard to place me in this book because, like, I, <laughs> I say things that sound like I'm an a conservative evangelical. I say some things that make it sound like I'm liberal. I sometimes sound like a Roman Catholic, um, you know, depending on which, you know, where. But in terms of the Marxist church, I'm quite traditional about this. Actually, I agree with you that a messy church in and of itself without word and sacrament is not really a church. I, I, completely, I completely accept that. Um, and actually, that's backed up by the evidence. And this is really this is really interesting, right? So to me, I was surprised to find that actually when you do things that look like an actual church, so when you're preaching properly, celebrating sacraments, when you're taking the orthodox theology seriously, it seems to actually have an effect in the real world, right? So there's yeah. some empirical evidence, right, that, you know, being sort of orthodox, slightly conservative, however you want to put it, right, does actually have real effects. And, and it's the same with Messy Church. Um, Fiona Tweedy, my colleague in, in Brendan Research, who did a coronavirus report about the churches during COVID. Um, you know, she did work for the Church Army Dumbsouth, and she found that it was when the messy churches started acting like churches that they saw the real growth, right? So when there was regular teaching and when they were celebrating the sacraments together in that key. So not viewing it as a sort of a feeder for the real church, not viewing it as a social activity, viewing it as a legitimate form of church albeit with a different form of worship, then they saw new results. So that's, yeah. that's a really crucial thing there, and it backs up the, some of the stuff about traditional marks of the church. Yeah. I mean, that, that's quite interesting because, you know, when we do church planting, actually the fact that we are the Free Church of Scotland is helpful. Okay, I concede that there's elements to the brand which 
are, you know, misunderstood, shall we say. But at least people out there recognize it as a brand. It's a real church with a real minister. And bizarrely, you know, secular people are kind of warm to that rather than just a couple of boys sitting up at some chairs in a school. Um, Does that fit with your research? I think it does in part. I mean, if you're dealing, you know, if if you've actually been ordained, right, by a kind of fairly well-known denomination, you have a certain amount, even today in Scotland, you have a certain amount of standing and respect because they recognise you don't just represent yourself, you represent an institution. But I think more generally you represent the church and people understand a little bit. And, and um, I agree with you. And, I, and I, 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 look, I look a little bit about, you know, the kind of free range church planting that's going on in Scotland. Um, and I, I have misgivings about kind of unrestricted, you know, guy, a couple of guys with a Bible setting up in a church hall, in a school hall somewhere or a community hall. Because actually there's certain bad things that come with that. Um, I don't think the endless proliferation of denominations is particularly helpful, ultimately. Um, I think variety is a good thing, but I don't think that that can be achieved by other means than just you know, free-range church planting. And I think that actually, yeah, having some kind of institutional backing and ordination is helpful. And it's interesting, too, that that's an example where ordination, right, actually might have some effect in the real world. This is not just some sort of weird, arcane, you know, um, intra-church debate about, you know, apostolic succession or orders or whatever, right? Actually, sometimes this has a real effect in the real world. Um, and that maybe shouldn't surprise us if it's true. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because I, I, I guess, you know, if you take away the fancy word ordination, in, in a sense, it's just that, you know, you, you've met the standards of your professional body. You know, uh, you know, you, it's like a lawyer, he's, he's gone to the bar and, and whatever, an architect, you know. So, you know, I think that's probably what it means, um, not that you just get something in for 100 quid on, on the internet. Um, okay, let's talk a little bit, I mean, uh, we're talking about stuff like, I'm looking at my notes here, messy church, church without walls, which I always call church without brains, so I'm giving stuff away here. Uh, I, I, ju- I just find, s- it's a little bit like, you know, a parish minister, you say, how many folk go to your church? You say, you know, 5,000. Eh? And he's counting his school assemblies, he's counting his BB group, he, you know. And you say, come on, you know, you're manipulating the figures here. Let, let's be honest. So strengths and weaknesses of this new church without walls approach. Well, it's not new anymore. It's, it's, it's kind of passy. I think one of the problems is the fact that, you know, and, and I, there's another article I wrote called um, The Scottish Ideal, um, uh, which is about basically the way in which um, people in the Church of Scotland have viewed ordination and the role of ministers and elders and members in ministry. And um, the argument of, the, of, the, of that particular article is that people, um, the churches generally in Scotland have restricted probably the legitimate range of ministries in the church. Um, and, I, and I think that's unfortunate. So I actually think we were too restrictive in who was doing ministry and mission in the past. Um, and if you, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that you know, the Church of Scotland never really seriously took its lay missionaries um, and other folk, elders, um, readers very seriously. And you know, they were just a poor substitute for a real minister. Because, and then we know that because actually said that a lot. <laughs> you know, it's like, we're not speculating here, they actually said this stuff. Um, so to me, you know, there's a long-term historical thing there. 
There's no doubt in my mind at all that unless the majority of churches in Scotland change very quickly in terms of the worship they're offering and the kind, the range of services and forms of support and community they're offering, unless they do that very quickly, they will almost all die. Um, I mean, the situation is so toxic that you know we need to adapt and change very quickly if any of us are going to survive. So that will mean bringing in new forms of church. It will it'll mean you know church plants. It will mean you know, messy churches which take themselves as churches quite seriously. It will involve people, you know, having smaller groups, you know, um, different forms of, of service, you know, maybe like a toddler group that maybe develops, you know, into something else, um, you know, a craft group that maybe develops into something else. I think that there's a need for smaller things. And okay. a lot can, can I just stop, stop you? What's, I mean, I often say to, to my people, okay, what is distinctively Christian about that? I mean, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Muslims, Buddhists, you know, could run a craft group, could run a food kitchen, and many of them do and do great jobs. So what what makes us a church? I mean, you've got a great section on on, on worship. I've got a quote here. Um, I'm not sure if it's you. Worship must be true to God before it can be true to the God seeker. Um, you know, that's really helpful. So comment a little bit about that, a distinctive Christian mission as opposed to societal support groups. So I'll give you an example of what I don't think should happen. Um, I'm not going to say the church, but I was involved with a church once where the minister purposely got rid of all the social activities and all the forms of outreach. And the reason why they did that was because they wanted worship to be the sole focus for community life, right? And... What that's meant now is that church is now dying. And the reason it's dying is because actually people, it, I, always, I use the example either of horticulture or even of the human gut, right? Mono, monocultures in nature tend to be unsuccessful or they tend to not produce the same kind of crop or results as a, as a, a kind of multiculture would do. And the reason for that is because actually um, situations change over time um, and people change over time. And actually in order to try and cater for everyone's needs, you need lots of different kinds of thing for different kinds of people and the same people at different times in their lives, right? So, you know, at some points, people might be purely focused on the worship, but then they might go through a season where actually they feel more kind of practically orientated. So they wanted to maybe help the homeless. Other times they might just want more kind of like social support and pastoral support, so they need that kind of thing. So like, but then you need lots of different kinds of things in the church to cater for even the same people at different times of their lives and to cater to different people out with the church right now. So, you know, as we know, there's simply not, and this is this is gonna this is gonna be contentious for some of your listeners. I you know, there's there's different rational choice theories that say that religious demand has not diminished in the West, and it's yeah. a problem of supply. That's just nonsense. Um absolutely the demand has declined. And um so you can't kind of just kind of come up with new options to get yourself out of this. But certainly it's the case that because people are more individualistic, they're more, you can call it different things. I think the people are a bit more self-centered. That's my own take on it, right? And that means they tend to prioritize their own needs and desires for primarily. That's a primary kind of focus. So actually, in order to meet people who are non-Christians, who you want to actually maybe share Christ with, you sometimes need to do things which are not explicitly religious to begin with, right? So you do need to maybe have a craft club or a toddler group, which could be run by everybody. But here's where the difference comes in, David. So you have to wait a wee while, but you're going to get it now. There's two differences. Actually, three differences. 
the, the, the first difference is that they're run by Christians, right? And well, you know, um, there's a problem in nominalism. So, you know, if you've got nominal Christians running things, this won't come. But if you've got actual sincere Christians working, they, by the way in which they act towards those people, that will be different from the way in which other people act towards them, generally. Yeah. Um, if they're taking their faith seriously, they will hopefully be more loving, more sacrificial, and they will just day-to-day witness, you know, talk about their church life, talk about their Bible passages, talk about this, talk about that. Those naturally do that, right? So the people are one thing. The second thing, though, is the, is the invitation into the community, right? And if you've got Christians running things in these groups, they can occasionally invite people to church events, right? It could be straightforward worship, but it might be something else. It might be some other kind of in-between thing, like Solas, for example, have these kind of nights where they've got cafe, people go to a cafe and listen to a speaker, um, or, you know, some other kind of event like that, kind of in-between apologetic event, whatever, the invitation. But the third thing I think is a key thing is with discipleship pathways, right? So there's a way of thinking about mission and, I talk about five marks of mission at the end of the book. Yeah. But we're thinking about missional activities where they're sort of like running parallel to each other, right? So like we've got some people doing evangelism here and we've got other people serving the homeless here, right? And our church is doing all these forms of mission and how great we are, right? Fine. But actually it's not just doing the acts of mission themselves. It's important. It's the integration between all the different ministry and missional activities that actually makes a difference. So there's a lot of people who write about discipleship pathways or discipleship funnels, um, salmon ladders. I mean, there's all sorts of analogies and weird sort of phrases you can use. But basically what we're talking about here is that in your church, right, you're doing your craft group, your toddler group, your worship, your fresh expression. It's not just about doing all those things. It's about looking at ways to integrate with each other. So that's partly to do with inviting people into different things, right? So there's a kind of invitational culture, inviting them to come ever deeper and ever closer to Jesus by joining different groups, different activities. But also, like, actually, the leaders in these groups, the craft group, toddler group, you need to be looking out for people who are basically exhibiting some level of interest in the Christian faith and then be able to direct them onto different activities in the church to get them closer and closer to Jesus. Um, so I agree with you. In and of themselves, these things don't do anything. But if they're run by devout, sincere Christians who are inviting people into the church culture and church worship, and if there's actually like an actual scheme, um, uh, discipleship pathway system, integrating all these things together with intermediate steps between strict worship and everything else, then you start to see some stuff happening. Um, and, and certainly there's some evidence to back that up too insofar as it is, you know, it's, the, it's a relationship between the large gathering and the little things in our culture that seems to have some effect. Um, and there's there's lots of you know successful big churches that have adopted that similar model to that, and it seems to bear some fruit. Yeah, Liam, thanks. I mean, our, our time is running out, but just I mean to thank you for the book. It's prophetic. It's provocative. I've, I've had three Ps here. I could get a sermon, but it really is is worthwhile. Um, here it is: mission in contemporary Scotland. Now, I think I read somewhere that you hope this to be a centerpiece of a discussion is, is it a website as well can yes, we engage with the book in various ways you can engage with the book in various ways so at the end of the book after the conclusion there's a little section called appendix what's next and um there's a companion website to the book um mission in scotland.wordpress.com so there's just a few blog posts up there at the moment but i mean basically moving forward that will develop more um when i have time to do stuff and when people get back to me about things they're going to do for me um, yeah. 
there's some stuff there for you to engage with. And um, yeah. So and, what, what do you want? What do you want to happen to this book? What do you want people to do with it? I want people to simply to understand their context and to be disabused of the things they believe that aren't correct. Because I think we all have assumptions and you know perspectives which are not actually accurate. So I want people just to understand the truth. I want people to know the truth. But in terms of practical outcomes, my 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 hope is that actually um, because we know that uh, church disunity and sectarianism actually led to secularization, uh, I, I, we can prove that. I think that means that part of the solution has to be about the unity of the church. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's lots of discussions going on about different aspects of unity, confessional reform, etc. But for me, and I make the point very strongly in the concluding chapter, the bonds of communion between Christians are, are, are Christocentric and pneumatological, right? By which I mean, it, it's Jesus Christ and his spirit that makes us one church, right? Before anything else. And for me, we need to basically reclaim our fundamental unity in Jesus Christ as the body of Christ in Scotland and to actually partner with each other in mission to actually reach Scotland. We're never going to reach Scotland as little independent denominations and include the Church of Scotland in that. You know, we're not going to do it independently for each other. Yeah. The only way we can make an impact to all Scotland, the only way in which we can say with John Knox, give me Scotland or I die, is if we work together as yeah. one united church to push forward. I, I mean, I guess, you know, whilst I don't want to call you Pollyanna, uh, you know, what, what you'll get there is just no agreement as to what the mission is. Now, a, a great start is, is folk like you and I just sitting down around the table. I, I mean, the folks say talk is cheap, but, I, you know, I, I love talking to folk. And sometimes I really go on, and the older I get, the more I enjoy talking to people I may not necessarily agree with. Yeah, yeah. So, I don't know, where, where do we start in this? Well, well to me, we begin with, with God. And and, and, the, I, and what I say in the book is that actually we've spent far too much time looking at slight differences in how we do word, how we do sacrament, how we do discipline, right? That to me, that's the, it's like looking through the telescope the wrong way, right? That actually, the, the, I mean, the bonds of communion are not to do with those primarily. They're primarily to do with what God has done. And if we correctly understand what God has done, we actually do have common beliefs about Trinity, about incarnation, about the word of God, about the nature of the church. There's a huge amount of agreement here. Yeah. And once you've got that base agreement, it's not, this, isn't, this isn't, you know, lowest common denominator. I mean, that's nothing like that. I mean, this is just respecting and loving what God has done <laughs> and actually rejoicing in it and our, and our fundamental unity in the gospel. On a specific, but, but this thing, the mission follows from that, right? Once you, once you agree with that and really understand what that means, that has missional implications. And that's what the point of the book is. Actually, but taking seriously what God has done has missional implications. And for me, the five marks of mission, um, perhaps augmented, but generally as a basis, are, are correct. That actually, you know, and, and actually, although, you know, my denomination is painted as a sort of like crazy kind of dustbin of heresy. No, actually. I mean, on, the, on this score, even liberal folk are starting to agree that actually we need to be doing evangelism. Now, we talk about what we're going to be evangelizing about, but to me, there's enough commonality um, between Christians of different denominations. We need more research, we need more discussion, absolutely. But to me, actually, if you understand what God has done and the gift of unity he's given us in Christ, 
I think we can partner in mission. I don't think it's as insurmountable as some people think it is. Okay, I admire your optimism. <laughs> We're just kicking off another great discussion. I mean, sometimes when I meet, you know, ministers of other traditions, I feel that I'm inhabiting a different universe. Mm -hmm. um, I was at a, a meeting recently, well, it was before COVID, um, and it was an acts meeting and all the acts things were, were being wound down. And I spoke to this guy about the Trinity and we didn't even agree what the Trinity was. Maybe we should have kept on talking. Um, but that's why you actually do need high level your theological discussion occasionally, because actually yeah. like, we need, to, unless we can agree, for example, on the missing creed, then we can't really do this. And I, and I, I don't dispute that. I mean, in the book, I'm very, very clear. People need to believe fundamental what I call Catholic doctrine. They need to believe the beliefs yeah. of the universal church. If they don't believe that, you can't really partner with them. I don't think. So I'm not, I'm not some kind of, you know, sad sort of, you know, liberal humanist. I'm like somebody who actually really wants people to believe this stuff yeah. and take it seriously. But it's only when you take this stuff seriously that genuine partnership and genuine unity becomes possible. There is no unity apart from unity in Christ. The only unity Amen. there is. Amen. Amen. <laughs> oh, okay, so talking about seriousness, this is a serious book. Um, I loved it. I commend it to everybody. I think this book will, you know, if read and taken seriously and, and analysed, will become the agenda. I mean, I'm not going to say for the years to come. That's pretty arrogant. That's modern life moves on claiming too much but certainly for the next few months I hope folk will read it and engage with it are you encouraged at the reception so far Liam? It's supposed to be going okay I only received one bit of hate mail but um, it, it was it was a lady saying that I really like what you're doing Liam apart from the bit where you worship Jesus that's the wrong bit um, so I mean I'm, I'm okay with that I'm, I'm, I'm quite happy worshipping Jesus and um, yeah people seem to like it so I'm, I'm pleased Oh I miss hate mail I don't get it these days <laughs> maybe I'm going soft William, thank you very much. Um, generation listeners and viewers, it's been great having you. Stick with us. We hope to talk to lots more interesting people over the coming months. And once again, final plug, Mission in Contemporary Scotland by Liam Gerald Fraser. Liam, thank you, folks. Have a great day. Thank you. <laughs>